Are you one of the thousands of people who have added to their family through adoption? How do you sort out all of the resources, unravel the myths, and get started? Welcome to Adoption Unscripted with Micah Johnson. On our show, we introduce you to the families, the adoptees, and the experts who can answer any questions you may have to make this the wonderful experience that it truly is. Now, here is your host, Micah Johnson. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Adoption Unscripted Radio. I'm Micah, your host. I hope all of you guys are having an awesome week. I have to make a quick disclaimer before we jump into the show. So I'm recording from home today. I don't usually do that. And I picked the room that was far, far away from any potential noise hazards. However, that room is right outside of my air conditioned unit. It's about 3,000 degrees in Nashville today. So that unit is working super hard. So you may hear a little bit of humming. Also, not done. Also... Because it is so super hot outside, I have my dogs inside locked in the bedroom with my daughter, and they're barking their full heads off. So you might hear a little bit of dog barking too, but welcome to live radio. Have a seat and stay a while. Okay, so I want to um, tell you guys one more time about this awesome new, brand new website that we have. It's adoptionunscripted.com. It's brand new. It's been up for about a week and a half, two weeks. And on that site, you can leave me a message. You can ask questions of our guests. You can ask me questions. You can learn about future shows. So if you have a chance, check it out and say hey when you're on there. And if you are enjoying our little show here at Adoption Unscripted, please do me a favor And subscribe and share our show with anyone that you think it would be helpful to or was touched by adoption. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can also find the show on voiceamerica.com. Just type in Micah Johnson or Adoption Unscripted. It will take you to my host page and you can find all of our shows there and our previous shows. Alrighty, so... As some of you know, or you may know, that in my day job, when I'm not doing my radio show, I am a cultural consultant. And what that means is that I work with um, families who have adopted transracially. Typically, my families are white parents or singles who are raising children of color. And mostly, I work with white uh, families who are raising black children. So we're talking black children, biracial children, and African children, and children from Haiti and places like that. So I want to tell you a quick story about what happened um, with me and one of my families a couple of days ago. So I have um, a family. There are two parents, mom and dad, and I've been working with them for about four months. They have two children. One is, um, I think, three, and the other is seven or eight in elementary school. They live in a suburb of Nashville that is predominantly white. I'm going to say it's probably about... 90% white, and in the school where their daughter attends, it's probably about 99% white. So it's a pretty white space, and that can be a problem when you are um, the only black child or brown child in a white space. So the daughter came home to the parents and told her, uh, her mom and dad that she had not been called on in school. This had happened a couple of times before, and it was becoming a problem for the little girl, so she came home and shared it with her parents. Well, her parents um, had talked to her about it before, but it kept occurring, so they gave me a call. So we were talking, and they were having two different positions. The mom was taking the position, it's not a big deal, let's just be prepared so when you are called on, you have the answer, you're fine. The dad was not having that. He was like, absolutely not. Um, We're going to call the teacher. We're going to call the principal. We're going to call the school board. We're going to call everyone we need to call so that my baby can get called on in class. So we had two different positions here. So I thought, well, let's just ask the child and see how she feels. So we asked the daughter. She came in. She did confirm that she thought she wasn't being called on. And when I asked her why, she said, She didn't think she was being called on because she was black. She was the only black child in the class. So her mom said, well, do you want me to come to school and talk to the teacher? Because if that's the way you feel, then it's going to single you out and you're going to feel different. And the child looked at her mom and said, but I am different. I'm black and they're not. 
this is something that comes up a lot when you're dealing with transracial adoption. A lot of our children um, are being raised in white spaces. And today's guest is um, a person who knows about being different, feeling different, and being raised in white spaces. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, our guest. His name is Kevin Hoffman. He is a accomplished writer. He is a public speaker. He has written an awesome book called Growing Up Black in White. And we are going to dive into that because it is some good stuff. So we're going to dive into that. He has been interviewed on NPR and Nightline ABC, just to name a few. Kevin lives with his wife and his two sons in Ohio. So, Kevin, are you with me? Yes, I am. Welcome, Kevin, to Adoption Unscripted Radio. We are so happy you are here. Excited to be here. So, Kevin, um, I'm looking at my book right now that you sent me, and I have to say you might need to send me a new copy because I have torn this book apart. (laughs) I have mistreated it. Right. If we had television right now, you could see me. I have like multicolor sticky notes in here. The cover is all bent up. I tell you, it is. I've been, I've put I put the book through it. Um, and I use it so often in working with my clients because it is not only is it a story that they can use to get an idea of how their children could possibly be feeling themselves. But you've done something extra special, which I think is fantastic, is in the back, in Chapter 23, you have all of these um, parent action items that you give a scenario and then you give parents two or three things that they can do immediately that can transform that situation. And that's what I love. I love that you give us a glimpse into what it's like to be a transracial adoptee, and then you give parents some action items that they can take and make a change immediately. So that's why I think it's awesome. And I've told you that before because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the book and a big fan of, of you as well. So, Kevin, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your story? Like, how what was it like for you growing up um, as a transracial adoptee? Yeah, so I was born, it, it'll be 50 years ago. In a couple of weeks. August Congratulations. 67th. Congratulations. Hey, <laughs> uh, but I was born two weeks after the riots in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, born in Detroit. Uh, I was the result of an affair between my, my white mother and black father who were co-workers and married to different people. So mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, my white mother's white husband insisted <laughs> she give me up for adoption. So right. I was placed immediately in foster care and at three months old was adopted by a white minister, his wife, and uh, their three biological children. Um, We initially lived in Dearborn, which was at the time a very white suburb of Detroit. And uh, at three years old, my parents decided we needed to be closer to people who looked like me. So we moved to Detroit to a black neighborhood and I grew up surrounded by black kids in that initial neighborhood and then black kids all throughout school. So that's the story in a nutshell. Um, interesting time to grow up a biracial child living with a white family in a city that was really being torn apart because of the racial issues they were having. Um, so, yeah, interesting way to grow up, definitely. Interesting, right, interesting time. I can tell you that when I, there's a part of the book, and, and I'm going to read from the book if you don't mind, um, because I think the way you open the story was compelling and um, and shocking, and but real, nevertheless. Okay, so I'm going to read if you don't mind. Okay. Okay. You say... Um, It's the summer of 1968, and these flames are coming from the front of our yard, Monroe Street home in Dearborn, Michigan, a small suburb of Detroit. The sound of voices on the front lawn in the early summer morning hours brings mom and dad out of their restful sleep. Mom springs out of the bed when she sees me. She sees the reflections of the flame on the ceiling and walls of her second-story bedroom. At the window, she sees a blurry glow of fire below. She doesn't take the time to get glasses, 
so her vision is limited to shadows and flickering lights. Her mind recognizes its fire, but her nearsighted eyes can't focus enough to tell what is on fire. Kevin, what was on fire? That was <laughs> that neighborhood's welcome to me. It was a cross they had erected. A cross. It was about a six-foot-high cross uh, burning in our front yard, and that was kind of the neighborhood's way of saying, Welcome, welcome little black boy. Welcome, little black boy, to the neighborhood. Here's a big old fat burning cross. And let me tell you, Kevin, that a lot of folks haven't seen a cross burning, a real one. They've seen them on television and things like that, but they have not seen a cross burning. It is, in the worst way, such a fantastic sight because it's it's, it's unbelievable. And it is an image that I've seen growing up in the South and um, that I that I don't want, I would never want my daughter to see that because it's nothing but fear and hatred. It's fear right. and hatred personified right there in front of you on a cross that is supposed to represent for most of us something that has nothing to do with fear or hatred. So the dichotomy of what it represents, but what it is, is it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So welcome to Dearborn. Welcome to Dearborn. Right. Yeah. And at the time, Dearborn was a, it's, was called a closed community. So black families weren't allowed to live in Dearborn. Um, And the mayor at that time of Dearborn was very openly racist, Mayor Hubbard. Um, And so I got in on a technicality because I wasn't a family. I was just one person. But I mean, yeah, the community as well as the church that my father was an assistant pastor at, they all objected to me. A lot of people objected to me being a part of their community. Right, because I, I remember reading in the book that you said that the the parishioners, the folks at the church, even had a lot to say when they brought little Kevin to service. They had a lot to say about that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was referred to as the snotty nosed black kid in the nursery. Um, and then yeah, my mom shared with me that she would always a lot of the mothers in the church would come up to her, and at the time I was. We moved away from there when I was three, so I was under three years old, and all the mothers were coming up to my mother and asking her, well, who's he going to grow up and date? And what they were really saying was, please, Lord, don't let this black child date grow up my and daughter. date my white daughter. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. So um, when we t- get back from the break, I want you to talk to us a little bit about the family and how your um, parents' family reacted to little little Kevin being adopted and brought into the family. Because I know that a lot of times what we do is we have, not only do we have to work with the immediate family, but we have to work with the extended family as well. And their perception of race and then their perception of how that's um, going to affect them personally. So when we get back from the break, we're going to dive into that. I want you to share a story with me about your um, your grandfather and how he reacted to you and and how your grandmother reacted to you as well, because I think that was an interesting story as well. So we're going to take a break we're with Kevin Hoffman, and we will be right back. So we'll see you on the other side. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire, with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Adoption Unscripted with Micah Johnson. If you'd like to reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to hello at adoptionunscripted.com. Now back to the program. Okay, guys, we are back with Kevin Hoffman, um, author of Living Black and White, Kevin, you were going to talk to us a little bit about extended family. We're talking about how when folks make uh, an adoption plan and they want to adopt transracially, that oftentimes they don't talk to the extended family about how this might affect them. And And as you know, it does and it will. So I'm sure that back when they adopted you, your parents maybe didn't even want to publicize to everyone what they were doing because they may have thought that they were going to, they might not get the best reaction. So can you tell us a little bit about your uh, grandmother and grandfather um, and how they reacted when they saw little Kevin? Yeah. So my grandmother and grandfather, uh, they lived in the Detroit area for a while. And then my grandfather had a drinking problem. He used to work, he would manage uh, shifts in factories and he had gotten fired from a job in Detroit and somehow found a job working in a foundry in India. And so they were in India while my parents were doing the adoption plan. And so my mother, you know, <laughs> it was convenient for her because then she didn't have to share with my grandmother and grandfather that they were thinking about adopting a child of color. Um, my mother knew her parents well enough to know they were going to object. And mm-hmm. so, um, by the time my father, my grandfather got fired from his job in India, I was home. So he, they were coming back to the States to live in the Detroit area uh, in November of 1967. So three months after I had uh, been born and I had just come home to the house in Dearborn. Uh, and so the first time my grandmother and grandfather saw me was when my mother placed me in their arms, and the first time it was explained to them that I was a child of color was when I was placed in my grandmother's arms. And her initial reaction, fresh from India, was, well, he looks like a little Indian boy. And then she passed me to my grandfather, who said, yes, he does. And that's all they said. So there was a Mm -hmm. lot of, yeah, there was power in what they said, but also in what they didn't say. And that started a very... A very combative relationship between my parents and her parents, uh, really over me and right. you know, me, them bringing this child of color into their family. Right, right. We never, we never, I do a lot of work with families and we have um, an exercise that we do um, where we, I tell them, go ask your friends, your, your parents, your sisters, your brothers, when's the last time that they had a relationship with a person of color? How do they feel about people of color? Because that might determine how they feel about your child. And you'd like to know these things prior to the adoption, not after. Because we've had, we've had folks that have had to, I don't want to say sever relationships with family members and friends, but certainly take a step back from those relationships because their their real feelings about race come out and no longer is it something that it doesn't affect me a lot of times a lot of times we can take a step back when we think that what they're saying about race doesn't affect me because I might be I might not be a person of color but suddenly when we have a child of color what our family and friends say about race absolutely starts to affect us and it and it's a it's a shift and it's a, and it's a shock sometimes and so I can only imagine that when your grandparents are off in India, they didn't expect to come home and see little Kevin there looking like he's Indian, but he's not. 
right. not Indian. He's not, right. Yeah, exactly. So did you have, so um, what about um, your family's, your parents' friends and, and things like that? Did, did they have friends of color? Were you raised around other people of color in your life? Yeah, so my, like I said, we moved to Detroit, and so we moved into a black neighborhood, so all my friends in that neighborhood, except for one other family, they were all black. So, um, and it was interesting, so we moved out of Dearborn when I was three, moved to a black neighborhood in Detroit from age three to eight, and so my best friends and peers were all black for the most part. And they became like superheroes to me. And so they showed me a representation, a very positive representation of what black was. So I wanted to be like them. And actually, here's an interesting twist as far as racial identity goes is I felt bad for my white brothers and sisters because they weren't black. So that's a pretty positive racial identity. It is. Um, Yes, it is. At a very young age. Very young age. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that when you when so and that's excellent because that's that is a um, a place where a lot of folks that we work with at seeing color they get stuck because the idea of having to move to a more racially diverse neighborhood is something that mm-hmm. that I mean, that that's a big deal, Kevin. To have to pack up your home and, and yeah. move for the sake of of your child and sometimes that is absolutely necessary. It is necessary. Yeah. Um, especially when you're raising a child and they don't see any other faces of color throughout their day. We don't know how that can affect a child. Well, I'm sure you know, but most people don't know how that can affect a a child. I know that, um, of course, I'm a black woman and um, my mom is, is black, but my mom raised us in a lot of areas that weren't racially diverse. And my sister and I sometimes were the only black children around. And even though we were not transracially adopted, it still affected us to some degree being one of the only people of color in our environment as well. So, But we got to come home to a black mother and we went to black churches and we had black friends and we had black family members. But still being one of one of only in, in, in all white spaces, it affects you and it affects how you view yourself and it affects how you form your identity. So I, I absolutely get that even as a, as a black woman, I want to read, um, I want to read a passage. Now, can you explain something to me? So you say that you, you lived in the predominantly black neighborhood from three to eight years old. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So where did you move at eight? So at eight, my father got a promotion and became the assistant to the Bishop of Southeastern Michigan and with that promotion came more money to get a larger house. So we moved two miles away to an all-white neighborhood still in Detroit. Um, and, yeah, at eight years old, that was the first time that really I was treated on a consistent basis as a minority. And I was, I was uh, the first black child on our street and walked into you know, a neighborhood full of kids but kids who were used to negotiating life without people of color. And so, yeah, I would often become the butt of jokes or, you know, insensitive comments because these kids weren't used to talking with, you know, a person of color present. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to read another passage from the book. It's about you and your brother, Matthew. Now, Matthew is what, which brother? Is he the older brother or the younger brother in, as far as being older than you? So Matthew is a year older than me. You're older than you. Okay. Right. So um, it's this is in, let's see, this is on page 44 of the book, and it says, um, how old is your brother, they probed. Again, Matthew keeps the pace and immediately responds, he's adopted. How come? What happened to his real mom? This is the next question from another curious boy. His mom could not take care of him, so we adopted him, Matthew says, leaving no question for no room for questions. His answer tells them this is how it is, period. So how did that how was it with your 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 siblings? How did that work with them having a black brother? Because there are three of them, right? Yep. 
and you yeah. were and you were the youngest. You were the youngest, and you were right. the the one that was didn't look the same. So how was it with them? Right. So I mean, so it's interesting because growing up, I don't recall us talking about adoption or race. And so that was the most we ever talked about adoption. And I assume those answers that my brother gave, they were just parroting what they heard my mother and father saying. Um, usually those conversations with kids took place when the adults weren't around. Um, and it was, that's such an interesting conversation to have where everyone's having this deep conversation about you in front of you, but not including you. Like, right. uh, you could right. just, you could sit and park on that <laughs> for a minute, <laughs> and just all the racial undertones going on there and the undertones dealing with adopt, adoptees and how, yeah, people are having these deep conversations about us around us. And you're invisible. Us. You're the invisible yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And how do you take, like, yeah, how does that really affect you and your self-esteem? So, so my brothers knew the patented answers to give. Um yeah, yeah, and so that's how they responded. Uh, yeah, it was tough for them, you know. They were, you know, three white kids growing up in a predominantly black city, you know, and in that first neighborhood, they were the only, there was one other white family in that neighborhood, but so they were the minorities, and yeah, they were picked on because they were the minorities. Um, so, so it was tough for them. Do you think that that that, that that experience helped them, being that they were the minority at first, and they were picked on, so that when you when situation changed, and then you became the minority, do you think that they ha- were maybe um, extra sensitive to what how it may be for you because that happened to them as well? Because you typically don't see it is difficult to quote unquote walk a mile in someone's shoes, and that's one of the things that we do with seeing color. We do something called perspective taking, where I ask the parents to take the perspective of being the only person in a family or, or what it might be like to be picked on because of something that you have no control over, which is the color of your skin or the texture of your hair or something like that, or the fact that you're adopted to begin with. So I wonder if that made them a little bit more sensitive to what things might be like for you. You know, I've never thought about that, but probably, yeah. I mean, they mm-hmm. were up in, yeah, especially at that time. So I was eight, my one brother was nine and the other brother was 11. And then we have an older sister. Um, so my older sister was always sensitive to that. Uh, mm-hmm. was, she became my protector. Um, right. In a lot of instances. Uh, I think my brothers were, I think it has to do with male versus female too, but they were t- so close to it. They didn't do a whole lot of protecting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm sure they, they saw a different side of life. Definitely. Right. Yeah, they did. Um, and then it gets interesting. We're going to skip ahead to, when we come back from the break, we're going to skip ahead to high school. I have a couple of questions for you about high school and then college and um, how it was navigating. Because high school is hard enough as it is. How it was navigating high school as one of the few minorities in school and being adopted as well. So we're going to take a break and we will be right back with Kevin Hoffman, author of Growing Up Black and White. We'll see you a bit on the other side. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time. 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Adoption Unscripted with Micah Johnson. If you'd like to reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to hello at adoptionunscripted.com. Now back to the program. Okay, we are we're back with Kevin Hoffman, author of Growing Up Black and White, listening to Adoption Unscripted Radio. I'm your host, Micah Johnson. So, Kevin, I want to talk about in the next couple of minutes what it was like to be a high school student growing up um, as a transracial adoptee. And then I want to touch on college because we had a discussion before about college and why you chose college and those experiences. So let's start with high school. What was it like growing up and going to high school as a transracial adoptee in a mostly white space? So it was interesting for me because the schools that I went to all from, you know, kindergarten to 12th grade were predominantly black. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the high school I went to was about 95, 98% black. So So I was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was tough at first because I am shy initially. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, by my junior year, I was, I loved high school. <laughs> I mean, I felt really comfortable there. I was surrounded by, you know, children of color. Uh, both my brother and I ran cross country and track. So I was, you know, involved with school, had a lot of good friends. Um, could, you could date the girls too. No one had to worry about you dating their daughter because they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. So high school yeah. was like the promised land for you. High school oh was, was yeah. the place yeah, to be. Yeah, it was. It really was. Um, yeah, and, and everybody knew, you know, who my, it was a small enough school, so everybody knew everybody. So everyone knew, yeah, I was this black kid that, you know, lived with this white family. Um, they knew my brother. My brother got along with everybody. They, you know, seemed to like him. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to, yeah, high school was a positive experience for me. I mean, every now and then I would get, you know, I would walk in on a conversation, or someone would have a con- would be having a conversation, and they may, you know, and they might say something about white people, and then they would stop and say, "Oh, no offense." <laughs> no offense. Turn to me and Don't say you love it when people like, say, "No offense," because they offended? <laughs> like, yeah, right. It's too right. late. And I was like, offended. "Well, mm-hmm. you didn't offend me because I'm not white." Like, so <laughs> that was always interesting. And they, so that was kind of. That, and every now and then I would get, you know, the comment, well, you talk proper, which was code for you talk white. Talk white. Yeah, I've got um, that a time or two myself, Kev. Got that a time yeah. or two so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, well, besides that, it, everyone knew our family. They they liked our family. We were well-liked. Um, yeah, my mom and dad were active. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed high school. So let's jump to college, because when you and I first chatted about being on the show, I had an interesting question for you about college and the college that you chose. So let's jump into college. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like I said, ran cross country and track, was recruited by several colleges to run for them, um, and made one of the biggest mistakes of my life, which was to go to a very small private college in the middle of Michigan, in the middle of cornfields. Um, the name of the college was Alma College. It was a private college of about 1,100 students, and only 13 of us were black. Wow. Um, yeah, wow. and I made the mistake of assuming that the world was like Detroit. So I thought that I would go to college, I would always have access to people who look like me, and I'd be fine. I thought college was really just going to be a positive extension of high school. That was not the case. Not um, the case. Elma, <laughs> Elma really struggled with 
you know, how do we, how do we, you know, support these kids of color? And so what they did is they didn't do anything. And so mm-hmm. there were these very, a lot of racial undertones, a lot of, you know, they call them microaggressions now, but a lot of, you know, silly comments or you were just treated differently because you were of color. And that was the first time in my life that I really understood what oppression was like because I had no voice on that campus because I was such a small representation of campus. Right. And there's a, there's a, a, a passage from the book that I thought was fantastic. I'm just going to read a little bit from it. It says, um, it's on page 142, and it's, it's in the chapter Oppression, and it says, College is a bittersweet but necessary experience for me. It is like swallowing medicine that tastes like dirt. The act of forcing the medicine down is painful, but digesting the medicine will make, will make my future more tolerable. I am given a huge dose of real world, and it is overwhelming. The loss of control is devastating. In Detroit, I was part of the minority. I was a part-time minority. I knew when and where to ex- expect to be treated differently. At college, I am a minority every day, all day. I miss those who are like me, <clears throat> those who understand me. I also miss the likable me. The change in environment is such a shock to my system that my personality changes and I become someone I don't even like. That's that's. You said a lot there, Kevin. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. I just recently uh, reunited with, I used to work in the cafeteria in college, and there was a guy, he managed a cafeteria, and he was, only, he was about three or five years older than us. He was, but we saw him as an adult. He grew up in Chicago, white guy, white Italian guy, grew up in Chicago, was very sensitive to racial issues, and so he became a friend of mine, and I would often go off campus and hang out with him and his wife at their house. I would babysit their kids. And that was such a, a place to exhale for me. Um, I recently reunited with them last year and it was funny to hear their version of what happened. And his wife, Renee shared, you just, you just kind of disappeared and you seemed so angry. And I was, mm-hmm. man, I was so angry. And it was mm-hmm. interesting that she picked up on that that they mm-hmm. saw me change over the time they knew me. And it was, I was so angry that I had lost so much control. And I became the, there's actually a term for it. It's called oppositional identity. So I became mm-hmm. very oppositional. And what that is, is, and you see it a lot with young children of color where they become very angry, hard to deal with, um, very loud. You, some would say obnoxious. Um, and what that is, it's a response to racism and it's a protective mechanism that kicks in to keep you safe. So me in college, I became, and would often joke and say, I'm the blackest black man there is. And so I became the loud cussing, womanizing, do rag wearing, rap music playing. That's the kind of person I was, but, and was very difficult to get along with. And that was really a way for me to keep safe. So I would keep people at a distance so they couldn't hurt me. Right. So just just stomached college, saw it as a four-year prison term, and did whatever I had to do to get through it and get out. You know, what we find <clears throat> a lot of times is that when we have a transracial adoptee and they go to college, that is when they start to dive in and try to discover their identity and who they are. So they'll join the yep. African-American Student Union and they'll yep. go out for yep. clubs and they'll take classes and they'll try to figure out who they are away from the, the family and away from what, who they were and how they were and, and where they were determined by something else. They get to go to college and determine who they are and how they are. And, and um, we find that happens a lot. We find a lot of parents are, are uncomfortable with that too when they when their child comes back from college because they're like, I'm sorry, who are you again? Yeah, because right. when you left, you were someone different than you are. And I think that's just the, the path to discovery. That's the path to discovery. So um, in college, you and you know, you had a path to discovery too. It may not have been the same path that other young, you know, African American black children experience when they go to college, but you certainly had a path to discovery in your own way. Now let's get to one of my favorite, favorite parts of the book, and I told you this before, is chapter 23. 
Lessons from Life. So in this, and we, I'm telling you folks, you got to go out and get this book because you will get to hear more of Kevin's stories. And they're so, they're so real. They're so authentic. They're so enjoyable. Um, but then at the end of the book, when you think it's over, it's not over. Because in chapter 23, we get these wonderful action items. And I have so many sticky notes. It's not even funny, Kevin. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, I mean, I'll, I just tore the book up, but it was with love. It was with love. Okay. So the first action item that we want to get into is says, when people show you who they are, creating balance and avoiding invisible children. What did you mean by that? What did you mean yes. by that statement? And that's really from, it's my favorite quote from Maya Angelou, where she says, when people show you who they are, believe them. Believe them. And, mm-hmm. and so my mother knew who her, who her mother was. So she should have prepared and anticipated that her mother was going to respond in the way she did. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we, she should have prepared for that. Uh, my grandmother, God love her, was, just really struggled with, with, you know, people of color. Um, and in the end, in her head, what she tried to do was compartmentalize it and just say, well, he's not really black or yeah. And so that's what she did. And, mm-hmm. and so she never openly said anything to me uh, that she didn't like me or anything, but I felt that. Um, you felt it, right? Yeah. I, and I and felt you're right. People do show you who they are. Yeah, exactly. So she showed me who she was. And that's the thing that adoptive parents have to understand is that although my grandmother said never said a word to me that that was bad about who I was as a person mm-hmm. of color. She didn't have to. She I felt she was closer to my white brothers and sisters and they had a bond that I didn't have with her or my grandfather and she never had to say anything. Never and the had sad to say thing anything. was I walked away from that relationship with my grandmother and grandfather feeling that there was something broken in me because they didn't like me as much as they liked my brothers and sisters. And a child should never walk away from, from a relationship thinking that. And I did right. because we didn't right. talk about that stuff. I internalized that stuff and that really damaged my self-esteem. Um, so that's what I talk about where, yeah, you know, I'm, when I, when I train and teach transracial families, you know, I tell them, I say, you know who your family members are. You know Uncle Bob is going to have an issue with right. your and you child know what, of color. Kevin, I think that that is something that um, that that's a big. It's a, it's an undertaking. It's an undertaking to to yeah. to to accept people for who they really are. It is. Yeah. Um, we have. Um, I'm going to read from one of the action items as soon as we get back from break because I want you to explain to me what you meant by um, make sure that you tell their children their story. What yeah. what it. Make sure that they know their story. So as soon as we get back from break, I want you to dive into that for me. Okay? Okay. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What is your purpose? In the journey that we call life, our values are pre-programmed into us before we're born. During our lives, we pick up life's lessons and soul connections along the way. We explore this path on Soul Sessions with Solstice, featuring hosts Delana Davis and Rita McRae. Our program is designed to help you more confidently live from your heart and not just your head. Tune in live for Soul Sessions with Solstice every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Adoption Unscripted with Micah Johnson. If you'd like to reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to hello at adoptionunscripted.com. Now back to the program. Okay, guys, we're back with Kevin Hoffman, author of Growing Up Black and White. And Kevin... The book is so full of information. I really want to get to some of these action items, but I don't think we're going to have a chance to get to all of them. So would you mind coming back so we can maybe touch on these action items? Sure, we'd love to. Fantastic. So, but since we can't get to all of them, if you had to tell us what was the number one action item that you would want folks to walk away with today before we're able to jump back on them on another show, what would that be? Uh... To me, the biggest ones are just race and culture and the importance of both. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of parents have the assumption that if we don't talk about race, children won't be affected by it. And I often compare race to gravity and say, even if you don't believe in gravity, it's still going to affect you. And it's it's the same with race, that even if you don't believe that your child is going to be impacted by race, Ignoring it doesn't make it go away, and they will be. I can tell you as a person who will be 50 in a couple weeks, I'm impacted by race on a daily basis. So ignoring it will not make it go away. So you've got to address those things. Talk about race. You know, celebrate your child's culture. Um, Yeah, do things to put your child in connection with people who look like them. And that's not just – so here's the other – kind of misinformation out there is, well, we'll just move to a diverse community and they'll be fine. Well, if that diverse community has, you know, Indian people in it and Chinese people in it and Korean people in it, but no black people and your child is black, that really doesn't do a whole lot for your black child. So the assumption is, yeah, so the assumption is I'm going to move to a diverse community and just because I'm around different people, you know, I will learn about Indian culture because I have an Indian neighbor. And so information about their culture will just seep through my walls and I'll learn about it through osmosis. And that doesn't happen. It has to be very purposeful. You have to do purposeful things to put your child in touch with their culture, which honors them and gives them a, a better self-esteem. It That's what we where work they on come the most. From. That's what we work on the most with seeing color. It is, and it's, and I think it's the, you know, if you're talking about race and culture, culture by far is the the more fun, okay? Because race right. and can dig up so many other issues, and we're going to dive into that on the next show because a lot of things that you talk about in your action items have a lot to do with race. But mm-hmm. culture, if you have to pick one of the two, culture is the one that is most enjoyable. My my parents tend to tell me because you can, because you're discovering and you're learning right. and you're sharing, and the children really want to see themselves represented. And they want to know about themselves, and we do a lot of racial mirroring because that's important as well. Um, culture is, um, you know, traditions and things that, that those things are important. And you can't just live in a neighborhood. And I mean, honestly, Kevin, you can't just live in a neighborhood where there's where there are other black people and think that that's enough either. If you're exactly. raising a black right. child, because yeah, those black people have community. to have to be part of that community. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Right. You have to make, make that a part of your everyday life. And yeah. Um, and, you know, how many black folks are at your table having dinner? How many black exactly. folks do you know at work? You know, do you have black dentists and doctors and or and yeah. not just black by any means? You know, transracial adoption is not just it, typically right. when, when you talk about it, it's mostly black and white. But it's it's any to a parent and a child that aren't the same race. I have a guest coming on next week and he's a black man and he has adopted three white children. That's a transracial adoption. 
Um, it yeah. just so happens that I think that when you're looking at it um, and you're finding where it might be the most difficult for folks and the, with the race component, it is typically white and black where you find that to be the most difficult component. Absolutely. Yes. So, Kevin, let, let's talk a little bit about you and some things that are coming up in your world. What are some things that you're doing? Tell us about where we can find you. Tell us a little bit more about the book. Where can we get the book? The book is available on Amazon. That's where I got it. Well, that's yeah. why I bought a copy of it. You actually sent me mine, but I've given several copies away on Amazon. And yep. and it's, if you just search Growing Up Black and White, it comes up right away. Um, it's available on, through my website. I write a blog. It's called My Mind on Paper. So if you just go to mymindonpaper.wordpress.com, uh, you can find me or just kevinhoffman.com, you can find me. Um, okay. So that's what I'm doing. I did a lot of work in the adoption community, but now I'm moving into, which I'm really excited about, which is doing uh, training for schools, primary, secondary, and universities on cultural intelligence, which is, you know, the 2000 version of uh, diversity and inclusion. Right. Training. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's yeah. exciting. That's exciting. So you're going to go to schools and do this. It's awesome. Yeah, which is is really needed. I mean, if you, the assumption is we're all the same and that we can treat all kids the same and they're not impacted by race or culture. And that's not really true. They're, you know, when you start to really learn about culture, you'll understand why certain kids will react to things differently. And it's because of where they come from and their cultural beliefs. And so how do you, you know, help children through learning and through school and respecting culture and, and getting all you can out of them. So, so yeah, you have some exciting things coming up. You have some exciting things coming up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm excited for you. And I'm excited for you to come back to Adoption Unscripted and let's dig into these action items. So, folks, um, just one more time, I want to remind you the name of the book is Growing Up Black and White it is by Kevin Hoffman. You can find this book at Amazon. Dot com and Kevin, tell us one more time um, your 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 blog. Give us your blog information one more time. It's uh, my mind on paper. My mind on paper dot Okay, guys, we've run out of time once again. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Adoption Unscripted. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also, check out our new website at www.adoptionunscripted.com. You guys have an awesome weekend, and I will see you next Friday. Take care. Thanks so much, Kevin. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for Adoption Unscripted. We hope you'll tune in for another edition of the program with your host, Micah Johnson, next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.